Hi, everybody. I'm Barbara Paulson, and you're listening to Midway, a podcast on why it's never too late to restart your life. I'm making this podcast because I'm on a kind of journey. I recently quit a dream job. My only son will soon leave for college, and I need to figure out what's next for me. But I'm a bit lost. So I'm making this podcast about the creative, messy, scary process of trying to reinvent myself. And I admit, I'm mostly making it for me, but I'm hoping it might help you too. So join me as I figure out a roadmap for the future. Once again, I want to turn back the clock to some recordings I made right after I quit my job and was anticipating the next stage of my life. I have to say, from my point of view as your mother, one of the things that is interesting and changes the most is that you used to be a lot more talkative with me. It's more that we kind of have, uh, you know, sometimes different interests. So, Right, yeah. You know, it's no shocker, but when you're the mother of a 16-year-old, they are pulling away from you. And most of the time, Miro spends a lot of time in his room listening to music, and I have to admit that when he comes out, <laughs> I, you know, usually pounce on him with questions and reminders. And No. Do you know that I've asked you to do this? Time? No, you said you were going to do it once. I just wasn't liking the pattern that we were falling into. You haven't asked me multiple times. I've asked you multiple times. No, no, no. You've said. And you've always said, not now. Any parent of a teenager can get wistful about what's been lost, when they were younger and they drove you around the bend with all their need and now they don't need you and it's not like you want them to need you anymore but there's a closeness that is lost. Miro used to share so much of what he was thinking with me and my husband Tio. Uh-huh. He was constantly telling us about his latest discoveries. Look, look how this kind of orbits around. Oh, Mom, 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 you know there's something, there's this program that... And now we really don't know what he's thinking most of the time. When you think about what advice you'd give, not even just to me, but just to parents of a 16-year-old in general, what would it be? (laughs) I don't know, Mom. The 16-year-olds are not a homogenous group. Okay, well, just for you, then. I'm not going to give you away my secrets. Ugh, it's embarrassing to listen to how hard I'm trying to get through to him. Well, if you could tell me what you wanted me to do more or less of, it would make your life easier. Just tell, You can tell me. Less, less interviewing. <laughs> of course I know him pulling away is a healthy development. And it's probably going to make it easier for me and Tio to adjust when Miro leaves for college. Though it often seems like I spend a lot more time dreading the emptiness than Tio does. Maybe I don't spend as much time as you do living in the future, thinking about the consequences of Miro being gone, so, so that there isn't yet... I know, here that, I am already projecting two years into the future. Right, and I, you know, I find it hard enough to project uh, to a month from now. <laughs> So, I think but that's that what... is it. We always said that. You're so zen. Yeah. Well, it's... it's yeah, uh, you're you... much more in the moment. I wanted to channel some of Tio's zen attitude because part of the reason I decided to quit my job in the first place was that I wanted to spend more time with Miro now to try and regain some of the intimacy that had slipped away while I'd been focused on my job and he'd grown into a teenager all of a sudden. But was that still possible? 
I just didn't know. Could we get some of our closeness back? To find out, about a month after I left my job, my little family of three did what so many Americans do when they're looking for answers. We decided to take a road trip out west. This is the story about that trip, of the people and places we encounter over the course of a 2,000-mile trek across the southwest. But like any road trip story, it's also about other things, about love and attachment, and how learning to tell the difference can transform relationships, can transform us. I've broken the trip up into several chunks to keep things manageable. So here goes. Chapter one, beneath the surface. And we're headed for the Oklahoma Panhandle. You guys psyched? We are. Mir, are you psyched? Yep. <laughs> All right, love you guys. It's gonna be an adventure. We start our road trip in Oklahoma because our plan is to retrace the journey taken by the Joad family in the Grapes of Wrath. That wind it blowed and the dust got black. As you may remember, back in the 1930s, a severe drought created these huge dust storms that drove thousands of farmers off their land. Yeah, the Dust Bowl. And tens of thousands of refugees escaped on Route 66 to California, where they hoped to find jobs picking fruit. We're stranded now on the 66 highway from old Oklahoma to Los Angeles. Miro had just read Steinbeck's novel for his sophomore English class, and so I decided to read it too. A human revealing, soul-stirring story that instantly becomes the most discussed novel of modern literature. And I was so moved by this book, by the relationship between Ma and Pa and their son, Tom Joad, and by the parallels between the Dust Bowl then and the drought that's taken hold of the Southwest and in California today. The grapes of wrath, please. I'll have to put you on the waiting list. We've never had such a demand for a book. Do you have a copy of Grapes of Wrath? Sorry, we're all sold out. I can't supply the demand. The Grapes of Wrath, the Grapes of Wrath, the Grapes of Wrath, the Grapes of Wrath. And can I just say, if you haven't read it, please put it on your list. And don't be shocked by the ending, which is a bit jarring. And spoiler alert, you will find out how the book ends by the end of this podcast. So we drive out of Oklahoma City on Interstate 40. It's replaced much of the original Route 66. And the romance of the open road kind of fizzles. The interstate is under construction. This is pretty ugly. It's lined with big box stores and endless shopping malls. What was I thinking? Not the stuff of vacation postcards. I don't even like to drive. And Miro? I'd forgotten, he gets terribly car sick. I'm not exactly a car person. It's dawning on me that I've planned a three week car trip through some of the country's flattest, bleakest landscape with a teenager who's allergic to cars. Oklahoma was very barren. It looked like a place that, like, I don't know, maybe used to have some crops. You okay, man? Yeah. You getting a little car sick? No. I tell him he can sit in the front seat whenever he's feeling queasy. And he calls shotgun for the rest of the trip. But on the bright side, at least our road trip has a mission. Because when I told my old boss at National Geographic about our upcoming vacation, she said she'd be interested in a series of articles about it for the magazine's website. So that means as we drive the highway through this desolate landscape, at least we have an excuse to stop in small towns and talk to people. Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California. So this becomes our quest. We want to ask people how today's drought compares to the one that produced the Dust Bowl 75 years ago, to find out whether history might be repeating itself. This is all news to Miro. I didn't really realize until I came out here that there was a drought. 
I don't know, it wasn't in my consciousness. Penguin Audio presents The Grapes of Wrath. We listen to the novel as we drive through the panhandle. The surface of the earth crusted, a thin, hard crust. And as the sky became pale, so the earth became pale. Our first stop is Boise City, Oklahoma. It's 110 degrees when we stop at a local store. It's called the Loaf and Jug to ask people about the drought. For a few seconds. I'm just wanting to, how typical is it that it gets this hot out here? It does get this hot in July, and sometimes we go for long periods without rain. As you can see, dry. It was never this dry. And it's just dry. No two ways about it. Dry as I've ever seen it. It's like asking someone to talk about their sciatica. It hurts, it never seems to go away, and they kind of wince when they talk about it. Christmas Eve this year, the wind got up, and you could just see the dirt just look like a wall of dirt coming over that mesa there. We were trapped out there on the highway, and it was, it was stinging our legs, and was, so we were, like saw a house, and we ran and beat on the door, and the lady let us in, thank goodness, because we were just like stranded. It's like a tidal wave without the wash. You know, the sand will build 50, 60 feet up in the air. It'll come across, and basically the, the dust just floats in the air until the wind dies down. And then you're just stuck in a real fine snow globe, I don't know, six to 12 hours at a time. And I know what you're thinking. It's such a cliche to talk about the weather. But even if you're not a geography geek, it's easy to see that here in Oklahoma, weather's way more than small talk. It's about people's lives. I know there's been a lot of um, farmers that just had to write off, you know, just total devastation for people that don't irrigate. It's really, really hurt them. We ask people how long the current drought's been going on. Well, we're either in the fourth or the fifth year of the drought. I'd say a good seven years it's been. We're in a seven-year drought. We're in the fifth year of this seven-year drought. We've made arrangements to visit a wheat farm in the town of Hooker, and I swear I didn't choose Hooker because I was intrigued by its name, or that its motto is Home of the Honey Toads, because it's also a town that was hard hit by both the Dust Bowl and by the current drought. This was my grandfather's place. That's Tom Fisher. This is where I grew up. A third generation farmer. Basically everything you can see for about a mile or two miles. Tom and his wife Patsy take us on a tour of their farm and Miro sits on the hump in the back of their SUV and holds a microphone up front to catch their stories. We do have a lot of wind out here and, and you notice it because there's no trees or really not a lot of hills. Tom says the current drought hasn't pushed people off the land like it did during the Dust Bowl, and there's a simple reason why. Irrigation. Nearly every farm here has a huge jungle gym of pipes and pumps that sucks up groundwater from beneath the surface. I've heard a couple of old-timers that actually lived here during the Dust Bowl days have said that if it wasn't for the irrigation, we would be worse today than the, the Dust Bowl days. So irrigation has been good for farmers in the short term. The water all comes from a huge underground reservoir. The Ogallala Aquifer has made it a place that's worth staying at. So yes, irrigation has helped people stay on the land, but everyone knows the water's going to run out because we're pumping it out eight times faster than nature can replenish it. And here's the other thing. Not only is irrigation sucking the aquifer dry, but it's expensive to operate. It's pushed a lot of family farmers into debt. We were farming on a lot of borrowed money. And our banker, he said, I want you to be cautious of what's going on with your farming practices because I don't want you to lose your land. We just decided, you know, farming is really not fun anymore. And we were spending 18 hours a day to make it work. That's kind of how we got out of farming. 
This is how Patsy explains it. And my dad always said, you know, the day of the small farmer's gonna be gone, and it, it, it is. Because those banks, they'll lend you the money. But did you wanna take the risk of going bankrupt? And a lot of young farmers have gone bankrupt. Tom and Patsy both work for the school district in the nearby town of Liberal now. Patsy's a school teacher, and Tom's a bus driver. He wishes sometimes that his sons could have taken over the farm, but mostly he says he doesn't miss farming. The only thing that I miss out of farming, I miss the smell of the fresh-tilled dirt. Now, as far as the rest of it, there's it's a lot of back-breaking work and hard work, long hours. I don't miss that. And I have to admit, I'm like, really? You're a third-generation farmer driven off the land by the high cost of irrigation, and it's a relief? And it was the right decision? It was the right decision, yes. After only two days in the panhandle, our eyes have kind of adjusted to the yellow fields, the flat landscape, the vast open skies. We've seen the power that weather has on people's hopes and dreams. We've heard people's stories. There's some people here in Hooker that still don't speak We to sold me. our cow herd off. Our kids are isolated. The daughter was killed in a car wreck. Our young people don't come back. There's a lot to take in. I mean, how could you have sold your family farm? None of us have any regrets. Life is not going to stay the June and Ward Cleaver. Miro's struck by how close to the land everybody seems. Everyone owned, like, vast amounts of land, like we'd be talking to people and they'd be like, oh yeah, you know, got my, you know, 300 acres. I'm like, what? It's a world away from the urban bubble we've left behind after a two-hour plane ride from D.C. If we hadn't stopped to talk to the people who live here, we wouldn't have scratched the surface of what's really going on in this barren landscape. Everything revolved around church and school. As the Fishers drive us back to our car, Patsy reminisces about what it's like growing up in a town of 2000. Well, I, I grew up in the Lutheran church. He grew up in the Baptist church. I was the wild one. It's kind of like Baptists didn't believe in dancing. I would talk to Tom about, you know, remember when Chuck Berry came to our homecoming or were you there? Because, you know, I was there. <laughs> Chuck Berry, when he was kind of on the down, his car broke down out here. Did you ever plan to motor west? They brought him up here, right here to the school. We didn't know who he was. But let me tell you, our English teacher, we just couldn't get over because Miss Caldwell just went nuts. Chuck Berry! Chuck Berry! And we're like, who is this skinny little black man? Who is Chuck Berry? He played and played and played. More than 2,000 miles all the way. Get your kicks on blue. And that brings us to chapter two of our road trip, Second Chances. We drive through town after town in Oklahoma and pass Elk oil fields City, in Texas. Shamrock, Allenweed, Groom, Amarillo. And outside Amarillo, we visit the famous Cadillac Ranch, with its installation of cars stuck nose down in the desert. We cross into New Mexico, where we stay at a cattle ranch, struggling to raise beef despite the drought. So we sold most of the herd and we kept the calves for the following years. And our next stop is Albuquerque. 
where we meet a woman whose story of reconnecting with her teenage son puts my own efforts into perspective. We've arranged to volunteer at a homeless shelter in Albuquerque, and we kind of assume that the people seeking shelter there would be somehow affected by the drought. But there's a different blight on this landscape. As we drive the interstate, we see billboards of skinny women in red lipstick with their mouths ravaged by methamphetamines. If you've seen Breaking Bad, you know meth abuse is epidemic in Albuquerque. The homeless shelter is called Joy Junction. 300 people or so, many of them addicts, come for dinner and a place to sleep every night. And that's where we meet Diana Peterson Lane. I came here about eight years ago. I was um, wanting to get out of the drug world, which I had been in for 28 years. I started when I was 12. I never fit in with anything and I could never please anyone. So I, my intentions were to end it all sitting on a train track. And a gentleman I met along my walk said I could make all that pain go away. And I did my first line of methamphetamines. I lost my kids, I lost everything. And I came here to change all that. It's interesting to meet Diana, because with all she's been through, she has this amazing energy. She graduated from the shelter's drug rehab program a few years back, and now she's in charge of training volunteers like us. And you know, to our eyes, the shelter's just this handful of trailers and prefab buildings scattered around a dusty parking lot and enclosed by a chain-link fence. It looks pretty bleak. But when Diana shows us around, it's like we're at summer camp and she's the cool camp counselor. Because I'm a nut. I think that in order to get through each and every day, I relied on um, making myself another smile. We're volunteering at the shelter at a happy time for Diana because as it happens, we meet her right as she's getting a partial denture for her front teeth. Because like the women in the billboards, her teeth rotted away from years of meth addiction. She's only recently gotten her teenage son and daughter back. It's kind of hard to talk about when I break it down. And she gets kind of upset when she talks about it, and I apologize. I don't want you to talk about anything that's going to upset you. It's, it's not even really that it's upsetting. You have to understand it's, it's, you get sad, but it's a happy sad because I'm gonna, I've been giving a, given a chance that a lot of people don't get. She says she feels really lucky to be able to look her kids in the eye and tell them she's sorry. My kids adore me now, <laughs> even when I have to tell them to clean up the room. She's learning what it's like to be a mother again. My son, bless his heart, um, he was having a really hard depression day the other day. And he was being mean and he was being angry. And I told him, I said, you need to go to your room and you need to think about it. And so we talked about it. And then he hugged me and he said, Mom, I'm so glad I have somebody to talk to. And it just, it, it tore up my heartstrings because I would have loved to have been there for him the whole time, but I am so grateful that I'm there for him now. This whole idea of volunteering at homeless shelters and soup kitchens is the secret ingredient of our trip. Because as I set out to figure out what I want to do in the next phase of my life, I know I do want to be of service somehow. And since I felt Miro pulling away from us, I also figure that working side by side with him, trying to help other people for a few weeks, will be a good way to reconnect. I know this is probably the last summer Tio and I might ever get him to agree to spend three weeks with us, and I want it to mean something. Steinbeck wrote so beautifully about the sense of community shared by the Oklahoma migrants. 
So this is our small way of trying to stay true to his story, to help people who are hurting, to reach out in the way the Jodes did to their fellow refugees on the journey west. Miro goes to a diverse public high school in Washington, D.C. He's not sheltered, and he cares about social inequality. But I'm not sure he's met anyone quite like Diana before. She'd obviously gone through a lot. How would you describe her, just her personality? Very quirky and bubbly. Kind of like you, actually. And him saying that? Kind of like you, actually. It means a lot. Because most of the time, I think he just sees me as the nag I so often am. Please don't be looking at your phone right now. Constantly reminding him about homework, or to make his bed, or to practice piano. So when he says he sees me as quirky and bubbly, when he compares me to a former meth addict who's kind of stolen my heart, I feel like maybe we're not so disconnected after all. It's one of those rare times when I get a glimpse of how he sees me in the world. And maybe for the first time, he's seeing what I'm like in the role of a journalist, not just his mother. You were constantly interviewing people and taking photos and the like. So it was kind of amazing because one night after dinner at the homeless shelter, we had served this dinner and it was like a bell pepper stuffed with turkey and a side salad. And we cleared the plates and Tia was washing the pots and pans and Miro was loading the dishwasher and I was putting the plates away. And I'd just never seen him work so hard. He disinfected the most sleeping mats. He led the charge to unload a food truck. And when it was time to leave, he was mopping the floor to clear the way for the sleeping mats. And he just wouldn't stop until it was done. I took a picture of him as he just dipped his mop in the bucket and was holding it straight out in front of him. I posted it on Instagram. Earlier that day, when we were cleaning the sleeping mats, a boy around six years old came in to thank us because he said he didn't like sleeping on the mats when they were dirty. And I saw him watching Miro, a decade older and a world away from his own life. And I remember feeling our privilege so palpably because I knew that in just a few hours, I'd be wishing pleasant dreams to my son on a clean mattress as he lay down at our friend David's house that night. And I'd fall asleep with my husband, Tio, sharing stories about the day, seeing that picture of our son, Miro, holding his mop like a sword. Okay, now we're gonna have some lively conversation up here in the front of the car. We've arrived at chapter three of our road trip. What we're missing. In the movie of this trip that I'd created in my head, I imagine the three of us careening down a two-lane road, sticking our heads out the window to catch the breeze in our hair as we drive into the horizon with big sky and red rock formations all around us. And I know I'm not the only one to romanticize this road because Route 66 is probably the most famous highway in America. Steinbeck called it the Mother Road. It's the road Woody Guthrie sang about and probably had in mind when he once asked a friend in New York, how do you get from here to the United States? That 66 highway, it's mighty hard. All day you're hot, all night you freeze. 
But we gotta have work, so we're taking a chance from old Oklahoma to Los Angeles. In the years after the Depression, the road was America's main street for adventure. I get two Nat King Cole recorded that song in 1946. It was that post-war era, when any American who could afford a car dreamed of traveling west on Route 66 to visit the Grand Canyon or Disneyland, and so all these motor courts and diners sprang up. Over time, Route 66 became this kind of symbol of America's restless spirit, a road where people drove off on a journey of self-discovery. In the 1960s, there was even a TV show called Route 66 about two guys who travel the road in their Corvette convertible. Well, we're sort of looking for a place where we, uh, where we really fit, a kind of a niche for ourselves, you know? But until then, I guess we'll just sort of keep looking and moving. But where is it? Where is that road from the movie in my head? Because the truth is, for the first week of our trip, even though we're stopping at Route 66 museums and Route 66 cafes, the road we're on feels nothing like the highway I dreamed of. It's a generic interstate with exit ramps and lined with chain motels and billboards. But then, on day 10, just east of the Grand Canyon, we see an exit sign for historic Route 66 at the town of Ash Fork. So maybe this is it. We veer off the interstate, and sure enough, we're soon on a two-lane highway with no other cars for miles. So we're allowed to go 55 miles. Yeah. Yeah. You're going 80? Uh, Are you really? I need to stop speeding. Brake. Brake, Dad. Finally, blissfully, we're a small dot on the vast southwest landscape. Steinbeck never actually did any research on Route 66 when he was writing his novel. He described the Jode's journey based on memories of a road trip he'd taken on Route 66 with his first wife, Carol, years before he started writing The Grapes of Wrath. the glory of the coming of the Lord. We are tramping out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Carol Steinbeck's the one who came up with the title for The Grapes of Wrath, borrowing the phrase from the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory. Most of the diners and motels we pass are boarded up and empty. They went out of business when the interstate bypassed the old road. His truth is marching on. But did you know that's where the Grapes of Wrath comes from? We stopped counting all the decaying gas stations. They're like rusting ruins in this rocky landscape. This is the most isolated. The cars are very few and far between. The land just goes on and on and on. There's nothing to the right. Um, welcome to, okay, here we go. Welcome to Seligman. Oh, I think we do a loop-de-loop. But in the town of Seligman, at least one diner remains. We stopped for a burger and coke at Delgadillo's Snowcat. I think I want to get a milkshake. You do? Yeah. Where's the place for telling me? What's it called, I should say? Snowcap. This is it right here, Snowcap. It's right here, to your left. From Seligman, we pass Peach Springs, Kingman, and stop in a ghost town called Oatman. It's at the top of a winding, steep mountain road, and donkeys roam wild in the streets, and tourists buy Route 66 t-shirts. Because this stretch of Route 66 has become something of a tourist destination since 2006. That's when Pixar Films, the people who made Toy Story, released an animated film called Cars. 
It's about an abandoned town on Route 66 called Radiator Springs. And in the movie, these two characters, played adorably by Owen Wilson and Bonnie Hunt, take in a view of the Grand Canyon. Look at that. And bemoan what's happened since the interstate was built. Look, and they're driving right by. They don't even know what they're missing. Well, it didn't used to be that way. The movie celebrates a bygone era. Yeah. 40 years ago, that interstate down there didn't exist. A time when a road trip meant stopping along the way to mix it up with local attractions, not speeding through to yeah. your final destination. Back then, cars came across the country a whole different way. How do you mean? Well, the road didn't cut through the land like that interstate. It moved with the land, you know? It rose, it fell, it curved. Cars didn't drive on it to make great time. They drove on it to have a great time. And as schmaltzy as this movie is, the message of slowing down on a road trip to spend time along the way, well, that's exactly what we're doing. It's the whole reason I wanted to get out on the road with Miro, to let him see what America looks like between the two coasts. But after several days of driving a road that rises and falls and curves with the land, well, Miro's feeling a bit carsick, and I'm ready to arrive in California. Like the Jodes, I'm craving a peach from an orchard in the Central Valley. So we push on and stop in the town of Needles, where we wade in the Colorado River. Just like the Jodes did. And we cross the Mojave Desert to spend the night in the town of Barstow. Just like the Jodes did. And the next day, we say goodbye to Route 66, and we head for the Central Valley. Just like the Jodes did. From the top of the Tehachapi Pass, we look down at the checkerboard of green and yellow fields below. It stretches off into a hazy horizon for as far as the eye can see. And it's really quite something to have finally arrived. And that brings us to chapter four. Letting go. We're excited when we finally reach the exact point where the Jode family ends up, in California's San Joaquin Valley. Because it's here, and not on the road after all, that most of the action in The Grapes of Wrath takes place. It's here that the Jode family looks for work, picking crops and weed patch, where Tom ends up killing a man during a farm worker's strike in Pixley. And it's in Tulare that the novel ends, with a scene in which Remember this? The Jode's self-absorbed teenage daughter, Rosa Sharon? After her baby dies, she ends up breastfeeding a dying man. It's not usually the thing, is the elderly breastfeeding from the young. Um, except for at the end of The Grapes of Wrath. Louis C.K., uh, of all people, perfectly captures just how stunning it feels when you get to the end of this book. Which I don't mean to ruin that book for you, but you should have read it by now. I don't know if you, if you read The Grapes of Wrath, but that's how it ends with an old dying man sucking milk out of a young girl's tits, and then the book is over. And you're like, Jesus, what happened at the end there? That's crazy. There's no other book in that genre. There's no dense, historic classic that ends with a weird, porny paragraph. But seriously, it's a radical ending. And in fact, the whole book is pretty radical, with its undercurrent of workers rising up in solidarity with big banks and industrial agriculture, all of which feels pretty relevant today. 
So we take Route 223 and pass by fields filled with migrant workers picking grapes in the 110 degree heat. We're heading to Bakersfield, where after so many days on the road, we plan to hunker down for the next week. And none too soon, because our 24-hour togetherness in the close confines of our SUV is starting to get to Miro. In Bakersfield, he starts going for long walks after dinner. And he's 16, so of course we let him. And of course we worry. During the daytime, we visit migrant camps and volunteer at homeless shelters and food banks again. We're told that more farm workers than ever need assistance because the drought has kept so many growers from planting. Because even though the San Joaquin Valley remains one of the most productive agricultural regions in the country, it's also one of the hungriest. It's hard to imagine that this land that absorbed over a million migrants fleeing the Dust Bowl is now suffering the worst drought in California's history. Even knowing about the drought, I'm not prepared for what we find. I'd imagined a valley full of avocado orchards and strawberry patches and lettuce farms. Instead, we pass empty fields and citrus groves with dying trees. There's almost no green whatsoever. Highway 99 is the road between Bakersfield and Fresno, the two big cities in the Central Valley. And as we drive up and down the straight roads that bisect 99, there's very little green, except in the exact places where irrigation moistens the soil just enough to grow a crop. This canal, as you can see, it looks quite dry here. Truth be told, the valley looks like a desert. Here's another canal here. For decades, snowmelt from the Sierra Nevada made this desert bloom. Until the drought, California's farming depended on this precarious system of aqueducts and canals and pumps that diverted surface water from the rivers and lakes onto fields. Let's go see this water over here. It's a precious commodity here. But when snow in the mountains doesn't fall and rain in the valley goes from like 12 to 3 inches a year, the whole system falls apart. I'm watching my trees die, my neighbor's trees are dying, oranges are on their way out. Near the town of Terabella, we meet Carla Eggman, an orange farmer who's angry about the water restrictions she says are killing her citrus trees. $2,000 per acre foot? Nobody can afford that. Uh, the government's basically starving us out. Carla's grandfather was an Oki. He lived in a squatter's camp on the Kern River before he and his family moved to Terabella and started his own farm. For decades, the Eggman family grew the sweetest oranges in California. Uh, we'd take our oranges and, and we'd go up to San Francisco and sell our oranges to Berkeley, San Jose, all over the place, you know, and they loved our oranges. Carla raised all her children to be farmers, but now they're looking for other jobs. My son already took off to go to Oklahoma because he couldn't get a job here. Anyway, we're, we're suffering from a dust bowl now, so, so we're, we're doing a re reverse re migration. <laughs> Wow, it really is like four, that. Four generations. My, my kid is the fourth generation from Oklahoma, and now he's going back to Oklahoma just to find a job. <laughs> it's, it's been a rough, rough year for farmers. Anyway. So what do you think is behind the drought? To be honest, I'm fishing for her to say something about global warming or El Nino. Oh, Lord, you don't want to know what my opinion is. I do, though. You, you really want to put it on the, oh my gosh. So I'm not expecting her answer, and our conversation gets a little awkward. Do you believe that God punishes people for their sins? I don't know. Do you believe in the Bible? 
I, I don't really know how much I am acquainted with it, to be honest. Okay, well, if you ever get around to reading the Bible. Carla believes the real reason for the drought is that God is punishing California for its sins. We're being punished for allowing abortion and gay marriage to become legal. Every time the Israelites, they would sin, and they would sin big time. They'd, they'd sacrifice their babies. They'd, um, they would commit adultery. They would uh, have homosexuality. I mean, big time, and it, this is not new. I hate to say it, but, but it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's like um, the ancient Israelite times where the Lord says, okay, you guys aren't gonna follow my rules, I will cause a drought. And uh, this is, I think, what's happening. That's my opinion. So during our week in the valley, we visit a migrant camp known as Weed Patch. What are you guys doing? Well, we're working. And we meet two brothers whose parents came to California to escape a failing farm in Stiglet, Oklahoma, in the 40s. One year to another, you never really knew what was going to happen, whether you were going to have a crop or not. That's Jerry Gibson. And my mom, she worked on a farm. You know, we chopped cotton. Uh, I picked a lot of cotton as a child, picked up potatoes. He and his brother Dale grew up at this migrant camp and are now working to restore its community center. Dale tells us what they're up to. We put electricity in it, fans and lights. The Okies who fled the Dust Bowl 75 years ago were destitute, sick, and hungry by the time they arrived in California. The squatters camps had no electricity or plumbing. But a lucky few ended up at Weed Patch. It was built in 1936 by the Farm Security Administration. And not only did it have indoor plumbing, it had a sense of community. And in The Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck depicts Weed Patch as this slice of utopia to welcome the Jodes after their hard journey. We lived in two tin buildings when I was a child, when we first came out here. And, and growing up here, were you aware of the fact that it had, this place had been made somewhat famous by John Steinbeck having written about it in The Grapes of Wrath? Uh, I was aware of it, but we came out a little later than that. But prior to that, some of the families that came out here had it very, very rough compared to what we had. Today, the Weed Patch Camp is called the Sunset Labor Camp. Who lives here now? Well, they're basically migrant farm workers, but they're, they're typically Hispanic. So how does their life compare to the Okies who came here in the 30s? Hello, are you Abiza? Yeah. Hi, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Albeza, yeah. Albeza, yeah. yeah. Do you ha would it be possible for me to ask you a few questions about the camp? Albeza Gonzalez is the Sunset Labor Camp's housing manager. Uh, we house um, migrant farm workers who come in from Cali Southern California, Texas, and Mexico. Our tenants usually follow the crops, so our main crop is the grapes, but we have watermelon, melon, uh, peppers, tomatoes, potatoes, carrots. Albeza grew up in a migrant family herself. My family migrated from Texas and we we worked locally and then we traveled out of state. The living conditions ranged from okay to some just like four walls and a door. <laughs> she says that helps her relate to the children who live at the camp. But I can honestly say I don't know how I would do it if I had to go work in the fields today. I think I would not last. <laughs> To do, the, due to the heat, very hot. I can attest to that. It's been hot all through our trip, but I'm staggered by the triple digit temperatures that these farm workers are laboring in. 
But Gonzalez says today's migrants aren't desperate like the Okies were. Times have really changed, and I feel that the people who came during the Dust Bowl was out of desperate necessity because they left to come to the unknown and, you know, to work in whatever they could. And compared to nowadays where I'll have people who come and they're like, oh, we're just here for a month. So it's not as much as a deep need. Many of her tenants own their own pickup trucks and receive food assistance and get to stop working in the fields when temperatures rise too high. She looks out at the rows of tidy homes where the migrants live. From my own experience having grown up in migrant farm working, um, this is luxury. <laughs> it's paradise, <laughs> I would say. And this is something I find over and over as I talk to people in the Central Valley. Even with the drought, even with the lack of work, even as farm workers line up for food and work in blistering heat, almost everyone I speak with agrees. Today's migrants have it easy compared to the Okies. Our time in Weed Patch makes me think about how much we romanticize struggle. And let's face it, even coming on this road trip to volunteer at shelters and document the drought, for God's sake, isn't that me somehow wanting to introduce a little struggle into our otherwise privileged lives? As our journey comes to an end, I feel saddened by the dry earth, the dying trees, the modern migrants who have no Steinbeck to tell their story. On our last day in the valley, I'm tired and hot as I take a picture out the window of our SUV without realizing I'm taking a selfie. In the photograph, my face looks tense and haggard, my skin patterned with freckles I've collected from working in the sun. I sit in the back seat and reread passages from The Grapes of Wrath to remind myself exactly where the Jode's journey had come to an end. This is the part of the valley not too far uh, from Tulare which is where the Jodes ended their trip. And when I read Tom's heartbreaking goodbye scene with Ma, I get a lump in my throat and wet eyes. Steinbeck has brought these characters to life for me and influenced the way I've interacted with people along the way, including Miro. Our plan is to leave the Grapes of Wrath behind and drive up Highway 1 to visit Steinbeck country, Monterey, Pacific Grove, Salinas. The towns that once shunned the author for his socialist streak now embrace him. For better or worse, he's become a brand. We stay at a motel in the town of Pacific Grove, and one night, Tio and I are crashed at our motel room, and it's grown dark, and Miro's still not back from his after-dinner walk. I know from pictures he's taken that he's been exploring tide pools along the coast, just like he did when he was a kid. I also know the tide can come in quickly. So when he ambles in, a big grin on his face, I lash out. Where have you been? We were worried. The words tumble from my mouth before I can catch them. He was wanting to share some photos of the sunset he'd taken on his phone. But I've ruined that moment, and he ducks away and hoists himself onto his bed with his headphones on. When you become a parent, you're always a step behind. Whatever particular skill of parenting you've just perfected, it's guaranteed to have just become obsolete. Just as I mastered the rhythms of breastfeeding, it was time to switch to solid food. Just when I'd figured out what fantasy books Miro loved, he moved on to philosophy. Just as I'd gotten used to the chatty preteen who wouldn't let me read the newspaper because he wanted to talk, 
He's become the teenager who won't say a word about what's going on in his life. I've always been a parent who didn't worry. I let Miro stay home alone and walk home from piano lessons by himself at age 10. Sometimes I probably should have worried more, like when he mixed chemicals in the basement on his own or stuck wires into sockets and gave himself tiny shocks. And so why is it that my parental worry finally kicked in right around the time he became a teenager, when it's important to let your children go, to let them learn from their mistakes? During these three weeks on the road, Miro did not begin to confide in me his innermost thoughts, whatever those might be. But maybe for the first time, I was getting to see him in the world, how he acts. And I was surprised. I watched him as he worked hard to mix cement and plant posts in the ground to build a fence. I saw him slice watermelon and serve up soup and unload trucks and bag sack lunches and hoist cartons of ramen noodles across a parking lot in the blistering sun. This trip has not been about getting close again. It's been getting to see each other as people in the world. For him to see me as a person other than his mother, and more importantly, for me to see him as the young man he's becoming. And so I am learning. The more I let go, the more Miro comes to meet me. So what about um, spending all this time together as a family? How is that for you? It would be nice to spend some time away from it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it was, it's, it's fun. You know, it's always like, I mean, I know the inverse is like, whenever I spend a lot of time away from you guys, I don't know, coming back to you guys, it's always weird because you guys always strike me as strange people. <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't know. Over the next few days, we visit the Steinbeck Museum in Salinas. We eat a lunch of asparagus soup and braised beef at the Victorian home where Steinbeck grew up. In Monterey, we make a pilgrimage to the famed lab of Ed Ricketts, a marine biologist who inspired the character of Doc in the novel Cannery Row. Our last night in Pacific Grove, before our final stop in San Francisco, Mira wants to show us the island of rocks he's discovered at low tide. We stroll out from our motel into the chill of the evening and clamor out to the point where the ocean's waves are crashing against the rocks we're perched on. The wind is blowing and the sky is full of clouds. The tide begins to come in fast, and so we hopscotch the rocks back to shore, with me laughing and lagging behind. Tio and Mira are already on land when the incoming waves start to cover the stepping stones they use to get back. And I'm a little nervous as I try to speed my pace. Miro sees that I'm stuck, and he comes back out onto the rocks to meet me. He holds both of my hands in his as he steps backward on the rocks to pull me forward. It's a gallant gesture. Simple human touch is so good at summoning emotion. It can also be a wordless way to connect with a teenager who can be hard to talk to. The ocean waves keep rushing in, and I feel them soak my shoes. My hands are outstretched, interlaced with Miro's as we waltz to the safety of shore. I'm following his lead. This episode of Midway was created by me, Barbara Paulson. Special thanks to my husband, Tio, and especially my son, Miro, for going on this amazing road trip and for allowing me to tell this story. In scenes from the next episode of Midway, I take steps to pursue creative stuff I've let atrophy for years. One, two, three, and without me sitting here without you.
but I also worry about finances. Hey, Jamie, it's Barbara, and I got your email about wanting to talk about some freelance editing work, because I definitely need to make a little money here. And in the meantime, Miro's in full-throttle college application mode. What do you do for fun? I don't have fun. I only apply to colleges. That's all I do. (laughs) To support this podcast, please subscribe to Midway on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.